The candy craze that has travelers smuggling suitcases full of fruit roll-ups across the Israeli border. Seriously, they're having twins. Four times in a row, folks. The Chabad Shluchim, who have four sets of twins. It's official. Did they set a record? We'll find out today. And can the whole world be wrong? Well, apparently they can. And Professor Richard Landis is here to explain how. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your humble and lovely host, Hanwha Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. This is episode 106 of the Weekly Squeeze podcast. So glad you are here. Okay, first things first, I want to tell you about the inaugural Global Jewish Fertility Support Summit. (laughs) Those are six very important words. Sunday, May 7th, 2023. That's this week. A multifaceted conversation will be taking place about fertility challenges that individuals and couples face. There will also be a second summit uh, for community clergy, professionals, friends, and families that can best support couples that are going through infertility. I actually did an Instagram live with Amy Barron uh, a couple months ago on the topic of social media, and she joined this like eight hour, <laughs> eight hour live that I did, and she was a pleasure to talk to. So when I saw this, I was like, let me mention it on the podcast. I never, Baruch Hashem, had the experience of dealing with infertility, but one in six Jewish couples experience infertility. One in four pregnancies ends with a loss, and it's very, very painful. So Amy Barron, she's the founder of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby, just a terrific, terrific gal. She's making this happen, and uh, yeah, spread the word. There's going to be a panel called So You're Not Getting Pregnant, Accepting Your Diagnosis, Navigating Jewish Law and Fertility Treatments and Relationship Challenges. And the best speakers, Hani Levertov, Michal Ranis, Susan Saxstein are speaking on that issue. Uh, panel two, The Waiting Game, Financial Struggles, Spiritual Crises, and the Third Party Reproduction. Um, Rahi Hain, Rabbi Edith Solomon. By the way, now's a good time to tell you that I actually reached out to I Was Supposed to Have a Baby when I was working on a song on the topic. And I spoke to Amy and she was so wonderful. She told me very, very directly and clearly and straight up, listen, our community is so diverse. It is so eclectic. It is, there's so many different types of Jews are involved in our support groups that it's impossible to write a song that's going to strike a chord with everybody. So it's just too sensitive of a topic. And I totally, totally respect that. This is a community that embraces all kinds of people. It's absolutely not specific to the Orthodox community, not specific to a certain shul or a certain Jewish sect. This is something really for Am Yisrael. Um, The next panel, you're not defined by this, self-care boundaries and how to advocate for yourself. Let's see, Susie Holder is a speaker, Karen Friedman, Rabbi Elon Siegelman. This is so, so incredible. Wow. And last part at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, how communities, clergy, lay leaders, friends, and family can help support them. Uh, Beautiful. Gila Block, Ilana Frank, Rabbi David Glickman. So register now. I don't know if there's a cost. I'm not sure. I don't think there is. There might be. I really don't know. But register now. If you know someone going through infertility, um, send them the website. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. And yeah, let's help people. So many amazing organizations involved in this. AJFN. Um, Fruitful, Hasida, Jewish Fertility Foundation, Yesh Tikva, Pua, Priya, Geffen Fertility. The uh, amount of support and the breakthrough innovation that has been um, propelled forward in this field because of the Jewish community and people like um, Amy is just really remarkable. Kol HaKavot, All right, last night I went to the premiere of the Jewish matchmaking. Yes, I'm going to stop talking about it eventually, but it's officially out And I'm curious, did you guys think that I was spot on 
with my review. Um, so far, so good. I think that most people do agree with me that the show is overall a Kiddush Hashem. Allison Joseph from Jew in the City, she wrote on Facebook that Jewish matchmaking on Netflix is fabulous. She writes, we've been critical of Jewish representation on Netflix before, but credit where credit is due. There's Jewish joy and wisdom, complex characters who are diverse and likable. Call a kavod and more like this, please. Yeah, so I agree with Allison. Um, Benjamin Cohen wrote in the Forward magazine that he was a little disappointed. He felt like there were some lost opportunities. And the truth is there were a bunch of incidents or a bunch of times when words were used that were not translated. Like I know words like Chabad, Chsidish, Chupa, Haredi, Minyan, Off the Derech, Peyes, Shetel, Starker, From, Yeshiva Systems, Zvug, all these words were used and not really explained. So, you know, some people feel like that was a missed opportunity. And at the end of the day, um, no matches were actually made. <laughs> not that Elisa's not a dynamic, incredible matchmaker, but, you know, maybe they'll get more exposure now that the show is officially up on the air. So, yeah, I went last night. It was really nice. And um, like I said, it was Nachas. Should you watch it? Well, that will be up to you. Viewer discretion is advised. Okay, my next story is a story that is so, just so bizarre, and my teeth are hurting just thinking about it. And this is something I will not be partaking in because I paid good money for some of my teeth. <laughs> and I am not planning to eat a fruit roll-up at my age and, and potentially lose a tooth over this. But apparently, this fruit roll-up uh, obsession, the sorbet fruit roll-up fruit roll obsession has reached its peak hilarity when 650 pounds of fruit roll-ups were confiscated in Israel by an American couple trying to bring them in. Now, I Googled this real quick, and I was like, how much is a box of kosher fruit roll-ups here in Israel? Like, why would they have to bring this product in? Uh, there's a there's a store here on our block, and they, they sell all kinds of American kosher products. They have fruit roll-ups, don't they? Well, it turns out that there's no more fruit roll-ups in Israel, and if you want to get a box, you can get one online for 104 shekel for a box of tattoo... Tat tongue tattoo fruit roll-ups variety pack 100 shekels so that's why this couple thought you know what let's just fill up our suitcase with hundreds of fruit roll-ups and bring them to israel and sell them but they were confiscated i personally think they should have been allowed to keep it i mean it's fruit roll-ups like seriously get over yourself but then again now that i see that they're 30 dollars a box <laughs> um, i suppose they need to be taxed so yeah a video was posted on tuesday by mako and israeli news website and they show an official at ben-gurion airport sifting through three suitcases filled with hundreds of these colorful fruit roll-ups. Why? He doesn't know. He says it has something to do with ice cream. That's what you overhear him saying. So yeah, there's been a TikTok trend that I've kind of avoided. My kids have not heard about it, thank God, where basically you wrap sorbet in uh, fruit roll-ups and then it freezes and becomes hard and crunchy. And then you bite into that and you hope your teeth don't fall out. So that's the um, basically the trend. And now we have fruit roll-ups selling in Israel for five bucks a piece. That's crazy. Usually a box costs $3. Absolutely insane. Did you hear about this? And also, we don't need more candy here in Israel. We have enough nosh in this country. We don't need more ideas on how to get sugar into our kid system. Thank you very much. Please don't sell this garbage here. Um, I looked it up because I was just curious what the fascination is. But basically, I'm getting curious. This I, I am getting curious. You take the fruit roll up, you put ice cream in it, and then it shatters in your mouth. When we were kids, we took a fruit roll-up and we wrapped it around our thumb and we sucked our thumb. <laughs> and
And that's how you made a fruit roll up exciting. And they didn't have tattoos and they didn't have cutouts. They were just green ombre colored and sour and delicious and just perfect. And if you lived in Florida, they were super sticky and you had to like pry them off the plastic. I like the the bigger, the Lieber's fruit roll-ups, the big giant ones that were more fruity. And as it turns out, by the way, fruit roll-ups have no fruit in them. Do not kid yourself. The main ingredient is sugar. Uh, there's actually five different types of sugar in it. Uh, sugar, sugar from pure juice concentrate, corn syrup, dried corn syrup, sugar, and dextrose. <laughs> no fruit. There is no fruit in fruit roll-ups to the point that in 2011, the Center for Science in the Public Interest, a group that I did not know existed until now, sued General Mills over fruit roll-ups saying that their packaging and marketing was misleading because they presented the product as a nutritious, healthful, fruit-filled snack. Okay? Despite having, listen to this, approximately the same nutritional profile as gummy bears. <laughs> it was settled out of court. General Mills agreed not to put pictures of fruits on the labels unless the fruit was actually present in the fruit roll-up and to stop claiming that the product was made of fruit. But now they're having a second coming. Now the owners of fruit roll-up are sitting pretty as people start selling and trading fruit roll-ups like they're illegal drugs. <laughs> Well, I just want to know what happened to this couple. Like, uh, I want to know if they were able to take their fruit roll-ups. Like, did they, maybe they convinced them that it's for personal use. Maybe they eat a lot of fruit roll-ups when they're on vacation. Bottom line is we are dealing with an illegal fruit roll-up candy trade. Literally, cartel mules are transferring illegal sugar to our Israeli children, who, like I said, don't need it. Don't need it. We do not need this trend. It was quite hilarious to see that video, though. I was like, I know that. I don't know. Something about those fruit roll-ups are so kosher. Maybe because they were kosher and we could get them in Publix and there were not that many snacks that you can get in Publix when we were kids. But uh, I'm going to put a video clip in the Weekly Squeeze WhatsApp chat. That's what it is. And you'll be able to see all these fruit roll-ups that were sadly confiscated. Maybe fruit roll-ups can stop terrorism. If you don't um, commit terrorism, you get a fruit roll-up. That's it. Fruit Ups for peace. That's right. This week's episode of the Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by MosaicPress.com. Guess what, guys? We are doing our first podcast giveaway. That is right. One of you are going to win four incredible Mosaic Press books that I have read, that I have loved, and whose authors will be on this podcast. That's right. Four Jewish books, Reclaiming Dignity, Whatever It Takes, and two other Jewish books that I highly recommend. I love Mosaic Press. So this is how it works. Head over to the Apple Podcast app. Leave me a five-star rating. Tap the five stars, leave a review, and send me a screenshot. Email to hanalistings.com, and that's it. You are entered in the Mosaic Press Jewish Book Weekly Squeeze Podcast Giveaway. How exciting is that? So, again, leave me a review on the Apple Podcast app. Send me a screenshot. Or if you don't use Apple Podcasts, send me a screenshot of your Spotify account and show me that you are followed. And I will enter you into the giveaway as well. So, what are you waiting for? Put the podcast on pause. Slide down. Leave me a review. Send me a screenshot. And one of you will win four beautiful Mosaic Press books, including Reclaiming Dignity, a beautiful book on Sneas that we are going to discuss here on the podcast next week. Whatever it takes from Abashia Hecht, Cult Buster, Extraordinaire, and a couple more titles that your entire family can enjoy. So take advantage of this opportunity. Join the giveaway. Leave me a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so many things to talk about. Chachmat Nashim the organization that advocates for Agunos and against the erasure of women. Well, they posted on Facebook this week that they are looking to create 
illustrations of Jewish women using Jewish female artists. I cannot love this more. I actually came across a beautiful poster. Again, I'm going to put this in the WhatsApp group that I was stunned by. I was like, what is this? And I quickly sent it to Shoshana Keats Jasko and I was like, what is this poster? This is from Niv Harot and I'm looking at a beautiful poster of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Nashim Tzikaniyas, including Chaim Mushka Schneerson, Sarah Schneer, um, Bacheva Kanyevsky, Rav Kanyevsky's wife, Margalit Yosef, which was Harav Kanyevsky's wife, and a few other women that I actually don't know who they are. Um, I'll put it in the WhatsApp chat, and you guys could tell me if you know. It has their names. I just don't recognize them. And I was just like, wow, this is what we need in our classrooms. This is what we need hanging in our girls' bedrooms. Posters and pictures and images of Nashim Tekaniyaj for our girls to look up to. And that is what Chachmat Nashim um, posted on Facebook when they asked people which Jewish women they would like to see on posters. And some of the um, suggestions are Rebetzin Esther Youngrace, Gracia Mendes. Oh, that's who's on this poster, Gracia Mendes. Okay. Um, Recha Sternbach, um, Yael Harris Resnick. Oh, then uh, she suggests an, uh, an artist who can get involved. Please include Mizrahi women, Asnat Barzani, the first ever recorded female rabbi in Kurdistan. Is that the person here? Yes, she's also on this poster. I love that. Nechama Leibowitz. Who's Nechama Leibowitz? Why don't I know who Nechama Leibowitz is? All right, who else? Chana Senesh, um, Sarah Schneer suggested again. Uh, ba, ba, ba. Hedy Lamar, actress and invented Wi-Fi. I didn't know that. This supported the U.S.'s Navy war effort during World War II by inventing the secret communication system, which made torpedoes more accurate. I did not know that. Henrietta Zold. So many streets are named after her in Israel, but people don't know who she was. Someone suggested Yemima Mizrahi. Love her. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the most beautiful painting I've ever seen of RBG was done by Rivka Krinsky. Just absolutely incredible. In any case, I think it would be terrific if there was a series of posters. I'm going to put this in the WhatsApp chat so you can check it out. I love it. I'm trying to figure out where I can get it. I don't know where I can get it, but um, as soon as I can, I'm definitely going to be printing this. Honestly, I feel like everyone's face kind of looks the same. It's not like the best artwork I've ever seen in my life, even though um, Rev Kanievsky's wife and Rebetta Chaimushka are pretty spot on. The other ones, I guess I didn't know them. In any case, more female representation. That's what I'm saying. All right. Speaking of representation, there is a family, <laughs> the Grusmans, and they are representing the twin community by having their fourth set of twins bringing their family to Kanainahara 8 following the birth of their fourth set of twins. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. The oldest twins, Mushkan Itar, are 11. Rachel and Leah are six. Mendel and Esther are three. Three sets are fraternal twins. One pair is identical. And yeah, there's seven girls and one boy. <laughs> it's crazy. She says, we had the funniest conversations before they were born. I don't tell my kids that we're having twins. It's just a given. <laughs> but yes, they are twins in Shimon's family. Um, but for Hani, she says, it's been surprising. Well, I hope you watched We're Having Twins from Tovido, the Bella Brecha video that I made about Bella Brecha's mother having twins because... That's going to be your jam. Like, that is the soundtrack of this family's life. We're having twins. We're having twins. When even just one baby would have been enough. We're having twins. We're having twins. Oh, it's a double. We're in trouble. Lots of babies have to juggle. Twice the kisses, twice the hugs. We're having twins. Now, when I wrote the song, the original lyrics were, we're having twins, we're having twins. Because how could just one baby ever be enough? And then, I'm remembering this now, by the way, so funny. Um, Amy from I Was Supposed to Have a Baby, she reaches out to me on Instagram. I didn't know who she was. She reaches out to me on Instagram as soon as I post the trailer, as soon as the trailer goes up for We're Having Twins from Bella Bracha. And she explains to me how triggering the lyrics are. We're having twins, we're having twins. 
Because how could just one baby ever be enough? That for people who struggle through infertility, one baby is definitely enough. Definitely enough. So what did I do? I immediately pulled the song and I rewrote the lyrics and I changed them from, because how could just one baby ever be enough to when even just one baby would have been enough. So yeah, we changed it and re-recorded it. And I just thought it was uh, a small thing to do to be more sensitive to, to people who might hear that and feel like, what do you mean? My, I had my one baby and it was so hard. How could you possibly say that? How could one baby ever be enough? For me, it's enough. So yeah, and she sent me some beautiful message that people responded to when I changed the song. One person wrote to her that um, I told my husband about the situation over Shabbos and we were just thinking, Mika am the sensitivity, the sensitivity is just amazing. We lost twins in that miscarriage and ever since then, the word, just the word twins has been triggering for me. So yes, while I try not to get carried away and like not celebrate Mother's Day because maybe somebody has a bad relationship with their mother, for this, I paused. I paused for a second and I thought, okay, hang on. The song is recorded, it's uploaded. It's gonna be a huge pain in the neck to re-record that one line and I have to come up with something that fits. How am I going to do this? And I sat and I sat and I sat and then the lyric came to me. And when it came to me, I thought, you know what? This is documentish of mine because... Lyrics are like a puzzle and coming up with something that fits just right that could possibly replace lyrics that could have been offensive to people who can't have children. Well, that's going to be a challenge that I need Hashem's help for and Hashem helped me and I changed the song where it will live on for all eternity on Tovito's app. I thought that was a nice story. By the way, it's not a record. There was a family in Jordan that had 17 sets of twins, I believe, and a family in Russia of a family of peasants. <laughs> it says here peasants. They had 16 sets of twins. A family in South Africa had three sets of girls and three mixed sets in seven years back in 1967. And yeah, that's all the twin fun facts that you need to know. Twins, it's so exciting. It's such a gift from Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Poo, poo, poo. Hamsala metukimaele. I already saw 10 outfits for each baby. One for Beit Knesset, one for Park, one for morning, one for evening, one for Shabbos, one for Hagim. Baruch Hashem a lot. By the way, that's my mother-in-law. <laughs> I used her for Bella Bracha, and I don't regret it. She was terrific. All right. Did you guys see the video of the D sisters who lost their mother to terrorism and their two sisters to terrorism from a Palestinian animal listening to their mother's heartbeat in the chest of another Israeli woman who received their mother's heart as an organ donation? Now, there were a lot of questions regarding how is this possible? What does Halacha say on this? You can't donate organs. Somebody messaged me from Hever Kadisha. A lot of people ask me if it's against Halacha. Well, what's the you know what's the bottom line on this? So I posted a link to Halacha Headlines podcast discussing this particular issue because I am not equipped to address it. I am not. I just know that when I saw the clip of Lucy D's daughter sobbing, listening to her mother's heartbeat in the chest of another Israeli woman whose life was saved because of this heart. I was so overcome with emotion. I cropped it. I added a little bit of music. I put it on social media and that was yesterday. Today it has over 150,000 views. I think it was shared 2,000 times. Kid you not. One of the most emotional, deeply sad and beautiful, bittersweet moments I've ever seen in my life. Again, I will put that in the show notes so that um, you guys can watch that and pass it along. But Mikam we, Yisrael, we, we build, we grow, we give, we share, we love and life continues. And in this case, Lucy D's heart has given a, another Jewish woman a second chance at life. And what really gave me the chills was that Tal, Tal Valenci, the woman who received this heart from Lucy, she said that when she was at the torch lighting ceremony on Yom Zikaron, she felt 
her heart just moving as if Lucy was there sharing the moment with her, watching her husband and her daughters light the torch. Just incredible things, really, really incredible things. And some good news, as of this morning, the terrorist that murdered Rina, Lucy, and Maya D, well, he was killed this morning, uh, two terrorists actually, and a senior terrorist aide were killed in exchange of gunfire by the IDF. Good riddance. Seriously, if not for terrorism, we would all live happily ever after. Did you know that Israelis have the highest life expectancy in the Middle East and among the highest in the world because our delicious Mediterranean diet of burekas and fruit roll-ups now <laughs> and iced coffees. We are doing just great. Did you know that the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow, one of the most poignant songs ever written, um, well, it was written by a Jew and it was written about Israel. Yes, true story. The lyrics of the song were written by Yip Harburg, who grew up in a Yiddish-speaking Orthodox Jewish home in New York. Let's just have a look at these lyrics for a second. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where troubles melt like lemon drops above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. Somewhere over the rainbow, blue birds fly, birds fly over the rainbow. Why then, oh, why can't I? I mean, if you think about it, uh, the Jews of Europe, they couldn't fly anywhere. They could not fly away beyond the rainbow as much as they wanted. And I think it's safe to say that the chimney tops of the song take on a different meaning in a post-Auschwitz world. I'm actually in the middle of Lily's Promise, an audiobook um, that Dove Foreman wrote about his or wrote with his grandmother about her experience in Auschwitz. Such a beautiful book. And we're going to have him on the show and we're going to discuss that book at length. But so, so sad. Every time I read a Holocaust book, the, the longing that the Jews had for safety and security in a land where troubles melt away like lemon drops and dreams do come true. That's all they wanted. That's all they wanted. I love this. And by the way, The Wizard of Oz was written by a Jew. Okay, L. Frank Baum, the author of The Wizard of Oz, he was born to Jewish, Jewish, uh, Jewish German immigrants. And some of the cast members were Jewish, including the Tin Man. Cool. I did not know that. Jack Haley, who played the Tin Man, was Jewish. So All right, I'm really excited about our guest today. Richard Landis is here. He wrote a book called Can the Whole World Be Wrong? An incredible book that I have highlighted front to back all about the twisted narrative um, that the Palestinians, the Palestinian Arabs present to the world as facts, a narrative that portrays Israel as evil and the Palestinians as victims. It's just unbelievable how many people are obsessed with the Palestinians and not in a good way. And in this book, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? finally explains how this lethal Western mindset amongst liberals and progressives goes way beyond bigotry against Israel and how it has fueled the West's failure to identify the jihadi war of conquest that is being waged against Western civilization. And Israel, of course, because it's always Israel. But yeah, can the whole world be wrong? Yes, I'm afraid to uh, break it to you. The whole world can be wrong, especially Rashida Talib, who, by the way, was corrected on Twitter numerous times um, in the recent weeks because she just tweets out stuff that are absolutely not true about Israel. She literally just tweets out random stuff and everybody has to live with it. Thankfully, Twitter is 
cracking down on fake news. But at the end of the day, yes, if the whole world is lying about Israel, then the whole world can be wrong. So get ready for a fascinating conversation with Professor Richard Landis on lethal journalism, anti-Semitism, and global jihad. My favorite subjects. Mr. Landis, thank you so much. Welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. I appreciate you being here. My pleasure. I bought your book on a whim. Honestly, my husband was in America, and I saw it on my Amazon recommended books, and I grabbed it. And he brought it back and I opened it up and I thought, all right, this is going to be something I learn, you know, something from. And now it's my favorite book ever. Highlighted literally every single page. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Not my, fa- not my favorite cheerful, happy book, but my favorite, no. you know, you said the things that I was thinking for, for, for so long. Right. In fact, a friend of mine said, you know, how Amazon twins books, you know, they, they package it together with another book. He said, your, your book shouldn't be packaged with another book. It should be packaged with antidepressants. <laughs> well, I, I don't know, because I was relieved to hear so many things that I knew were happening put into such beautiful, articulate words. That's half the remedy. Knowing the sickness is half the remedy or diagnosing the sickness is halfway there. So yes. I think this is a very important book. And yeah. you also did a, a written interview yeah. with Elder of Zion. I forget her name. Is it Aviva or Eliza? And she basically asked you, how do you expect this book to get out to the masses? It's it, it's a big topic. And right. you expressed your hope that your readers would help you with that. So I'm here to help you with that today by sharing the message with my audience. Let's get right to it. Okay. Let's talk let's talk about the key players in your book and how they all participate in this cycle of lethal journalism, right. um, a term that, did you coin that ter- term? Actually, there's a kind of history to it. Nidra Polar, who was the one who introduced me to the Muhammad Abdullah affair, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, uh, coined the term lethal narratives. And then I was working with Yossi Kuperwasser, and at one point he said, you know, this is lethal journalism. So he's really the one who coined it. Right. It's such a good term, and it just encapsulates... Yeah exactly what it is, because lethal is deadly. And this kind of stuff is having a deadly impact on so many lives right here where I live here in Israel. And that's why I want to talk about it. So you, you break it down to the, I think it's five categories of people involved in lethal journalism or part of the cycle, right. rather. You have the shame, the shame honor warriors, the caliphaters, Western liberals, Western progressives, and then the lethal journalists. Of course, last but not least, my favorite to hate, <laughs> the Jews who are against themselves. <laughs> Let's break it down so our so my listeners can understand how the world media is pulling the wool over their okay. eyes. Beginning with the Al-Duraho, the jihadi blood libel that you say, as far as journalism goes, was a massive professional failure. I never knew that story not to be true as oh, presented no. through the media. I just instinctively knew that it uh-huh. sank. Can you share with my listeners how the journalistic community continues to cheat their audience, their readers, viewers, and fellow citizens of the truth, and instead, using this Aldera right. example, presents a narrative that's as fabricated and fanciful as a Steven Spielberg movie? <laughs> All right. Um, well, <clears throat> the incident occurs on Rosh Hashanah of 2000, 5760, which was... Uh, Two days after Sharon went to the Temple Mount, he went on a Thursday, and this actually happened the next day on a Friday. And it was footage, very, very vague, shaky footage taken by a Palestinian cameraman who worked both for CNN and for France, too. 
It's only about 60 seconds worth of footage of what he claimed was an over 20-minute merciless barrage by the Israelis targeting this young boy with his father hiding behind a barrel, pleading for the Israelis to stop. The only reason that it succeeded was because it was championed by an Israeli, French, Jewish, Israeli journalist named Charles Anderlin, who had a great deal of a uh, very good reputation and a great deal of credibility, particularly since he was in Dover Tzal, he was in the Israeli spokesman's unit. And so when he called up the Israeli spokesman's unit and said, I've got this footage, don't try and deny it, you'll just make things worse, the Israelis sort of by default uh, took his advice. Once they took his advice, it was over. And immediately the rest of the media pounced on this. Now, the Palestinians have been claiming that Israelis target their children since day one. And the the media basically never accepted that. And CNN, he, the... the the uh, Palestinian ran his footage by CNN first, and CNN said, no thanks. And then he gave it to Charles Andela, who put it together nicely, and um, with his sonorous voice said, you know, the boy and the father are the target of fire coming from the Israeli position, which is the key element to this, the, the blood libel, that it was done intentionally. And and then immediately everybody picked it up, including CNN, because once it had been sort of given a hacker by an Israeli journalist, then there was no reason to doubt it. Right. And he got the moniker, he got the moniker Le Petit Mohammed. Because the French have another expression, which is Le Petit Jésus. So Le Petit Mohammed was sort of an affectionate term for this poor boy. And, you know, it had an immediate and deeply volatile impact, explosive impact on the Arab world first. And bin Laden almost immediately made a recruiting video in which this footage played a key role to recruit for his global jihad. And that uh, picture was on the cover of the, I forget what it's now called, you know, back in the days when you had... Um, uh, anyway, so it was on the cover of the 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 recruiting video was the picture of this boy, but the the impact that was even more disturbing in a sense, sort of culturally disturbing, was that in the West it was immediately picked up by major figures as a sort of excuse for Holocaust inversion. So a French journalist who was by no means either leftist or had any ideological reason to do this almost immediately said, this picture erases, replaces the picture of the boy in the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, you know, and in the meantime, in Paris, in the Place de la République, the demonstrators are holding up uh, signs that that have Star of David equals swastika equals picture of the boy and the father behind the barrel being shot at. It had an absolutely devastating effect. It turned it, uh, just about everybody against Israel, totally humiliated and embarrassed any Jew who defended Israel. I remember when it hit, I thought, oh, you know, how are we going to argue with something like this. 
And then it turned out it was fake, and there was an article in the New Republic, or, I'm sorry, in um, in the Atlantic by James Fallows. And I went to Paris in 2003 and started looking at the footage, and it was clear to me that it was staged. But it was so hard for people to believe that it was staged that essentially, um, you know, I'd say to people, look, there are five possibilities, Israelis on purpose, Israelis by accident, Palestinians by accident, Palestinians on purpose, and and virtually nobody came up with staged. You know, it, it has a striking similarity to this story now last year with Shirin Abouakli, the journalist that was was shot in Crossfire. Now, my immediate reaction was like, it doesn't even matter who did this. Like, why do we need, need even need an investigation? What matters is who gets the story out from their perspective, right. from their angle, with their right. agenda first. And that's just the narrative we're all going to have to live with forever after because the Palestinians have been faking scenes, stage injuries, splicing and dicing right. footage for years. And the journalists are use, more than happy to use it. Join and that's Pallywood. why I made the movie Pollywood first as a way to set people up to realize that Palestinians do do this on a regular basis, and therefore it's not so shocking that they do it to, uh, in the Adullah case. But the Adullah case really had mythical power, so that even in 2013, after Yossi Kupervasser's commission studied it and came out uh, declaring that it was almost certainly uh, a fake, even the Israeli media was reluctant to cover it. So as a result, it remains, it's, you know, like, uh, I don't remember the exact details, but in the Lord of the Rings, there's, you know, if you're, if a piece of the sword that injured you broke off and is in your body, you just can't recover from the wound. And that's what this is. This is a wound that has entered the bloodstream of the Western and the Muslim information system. And it's, constantly exercising its poison so that, for instance, if you wonder how it is that people can say that the Israelis are committing genocide against the Palestinians, which is a common statement, it's, it's such laughable. a ridiculous it's statement, and yet it goes back laughable. to this. This is the moment at which, and then, of course, there's the Jenny massacre, which for which they didn't even have any footage. Uh, they just had ridiculous reports coming from Palestinians, which they passed on as news. And that's my definition of lethal journalism, is you pass on the lethal narratives, the the war propaganda of your of one side against the other. It, the real kicker here is that it may be lethal journalism when you're a Western journalist and you're screwing Israel. But it's own goal war journalism. You're reporting the the war propaganda of your enemies against yourself when you do this. And so, for example, at yeah. Jenin, the media was reporting this ludicrous stuff about Israelis behaving like Nazis. And there were people demonstrating, including I heard models in Madrid who were wearing nothing but two suicide, mock suicide belts to show their solidarity with people who were about to blow them up. I, I'm on Twitter, so I, I, I feel the barrage of this distortion of the facts day in and day out, and it is absolutely yeah. infuriating. If you're, nothing rounds me up like this. I mean, take today, for example, Israel uh, reported, or it was reported that this terrorist, Kadar Adnan, was killed today. After, not killed, I'm sorry. He died after mo a month-long 
hunger strike. And Haaretz magazine, I mean, they're being retweeted by journalists all over the world who are saying, make no mistake, Israel killed Kadar Adnan. And I'm thinking, did you see the footage of him holding his machine gun up into the air, vowing to kill every Israeli in his path? I mean, this is, and we're supposed to mourn his loss now? Yes, well, I feel I like mean, I'm living uh, in the twilight you know, zone. Uh, this woman, uh, BBC reporter named Barbara Pleitkin, was actually reprimanded by the BBC because she wept at Arafat's funeral. <laughs> the sweet old man. Who, it's, who, yeah, it's like, yeah, like people saying Kaddish for, for Hamas. You're like, are you kidding? So there's this really scary text that came out. It was actually posted online on the no, on September 11th, 2001. And it's by a Saudi theologian, and it's called the, the, the Intifada of Rajab, which is the month that it occurred in. And in it, he actually says that it's the duty of Zionists to fight against the Zionists. And when I read it first, I thought, that's such an absurd thing. You expect, you expect Jews to join with you who are expressing literally genocidal hatred of the Jews and want to exterminate the Jews, and you think the Jews are going to side with you? And it, it turns out that, yes. But I want to explain to people listening how we got there, and you use a very good analogy to explain the concept. It's a basic analogy, but it's the emperor's new clothes. You know, the classic fairy tale about yeah. two swindlers who convince right. a vain emperor to wear an invisible suit that they claim only they can see, right. and anyone who doesn't see it is a fool. So now you yeah. have everyone yes. in the world almost right. doubting although, their own eyes. Although it's, it's not a when vain they, emperor. It's, it's an icon of hatred. And what you're accused of, if you call it, is of being a racist. If you say that the Palestinians are so base as to actually fake a death in order to smear their enemy, which they, <laughs> they do all the time, right? <laughs> you're a racist. So, so yes, it's an insane world. It's a it's a world in which uh, one of the arguments I make is that that. For Jews in the West who are reading these reports, they basically have two choices. Either they say Israel has misbehaved, alas and alack, or the media is misbehaving on a massive scale. And and they don't want, you know. It's, That's hard to swallow. It's really hard to swallow. I remember when I first, I mean, the term Pallywood came to me when I watched, with Charles Anderlin, I watched the footage of his own cameraman, and it was just full of either people standing around right in front of the Israeli position with no fear, or throwing rocks at them, or burning tires, or faking these scenes. And at one point, there was a stupid scene, and and I said to Anderlin, I mean, that, they, they, that's so fake. And he said, yeah, they do it all the time. Right, like it wasn't even, <laughs> it wasn't even, it, unash unashamedly. Unashamedly. You, you have a situation in which Jews are utterly shamed by what the media tells them Israel is doing. And as a result, some, not all, but some, have a kind of what I call a proxy honor-killing response, which is, what do you do when a member of your family has shamed you in a shame-honor culture? You kill them. That's what happens amongst our cousins. Even those who live in Israel are 
uh, less likely to do it, but they also do it. And, and But Jews are too nice to kill their own people. So what they do is they join up with organizations like BDS and Students for Justice in Palestine. They form organizations that hook up with them like uh, Jews for, what is it, something for voice Jewish Voice for Peace or something. Jewish Voice for Peace. Right. Yeah. And so they, they join up with people who will do the honor killing. Yeah. Tuvia Tenenbaum, who you quoted in your book, and I had him on my podcast. I'm a big fan of his. He he says that at the core of every NGO, every destructive force against Israel, there is a, a, a Jew there. Yes, and that's what yes. that's what he believes essentially. So yeah, and, and you you get into all of that and you try to break it down and explain. It's really hard to understand, but there is what to explore, and that's something that you get into in the book. But I want to talk about. Bush and 9-11, because I was still a kid then, uh-huh. a little bit tuned out to right. politics. Right. And I, I do remember 9-11. I was, yeah, I do remember 9-11. I was living in New York, and it was without question obvious across the board that this was terrorism. Everything about it screamed Islamic Jihad. And as a Jew, my first thought was, well, you didn't think Israel terror was a big deal, and here it is. It landed on your steps. But then, instead of addressing the purveyors of terror— yep the supporters of terror or, or or any sort of you know religious ideologies that support terror we listen to bush speak about embracing islam a religion of peace yeah. so can you remind people what america's feeble message to the world was in regard to 911 well uh, you know among other things if you remember nobody wanted to say this is a war on radical islam or a war on jihad or a war against the jihadi attack it was the war on terror and the reason for that was that there was this, I mean, initially, I understand the impulse. You you know, in the immediate aftermath, when it was clear that it was bin Laden, the fear was that if you started denouncing the Islamic origins of bin Laden's ideology, people would turn on other American Muslims and attack them. And in fact, there were a couple of people, including a poor Hindu guy, who was attacked on a train and so on. So we didn't want that kind of a response. And I think that's a healthy attitude. On the other hand, we bought it at the expense of making ourselves stupid. So Bush, three days, four days after the event, while the ground zero is still smoldering with uh, smoke, gets up in Washington at the Islamic Center of D.C., and gives a speech that was written for him in which he says Islam is a religion of peace. Muslims all over the world were as, as appalled about what happened as you were. A, Islam is probably the most belligerent religion in on record, on the historical record. B, people were cel- they celebrated. <laughs> celebrating all yeah. over, especially in an amongst Palestinians, and the footage was taken off because the Palestinians threatened the Western press and so on. And then he gives a quote uh, to to show how Islam is a religion of peace, which actually is a quote about how God's going to punish the people who make fun of Islam. I think Americans are so out of their depth when it comes to the Middle Eastern mentality. Um, I think the most nauseating quote I took away from your book really internalizing its absurdity is one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Because like I said, I'm watching that transpire on Twitter day in and day out, watching the narrative shift right under my nose to they're not terrorists, they're legitimate. So what doesn't the West understand about radical Islamic terrorism and how 
the Western mentality does not apply here. Right. Well, I have this chapter, uh, you mentioned it on liberals. I coined a term. There's a, there's an expression that was coined by a, a therapist who worked with teenage boys and realized that not only did they do nothing but think about sex all the time, but they assumed everybody else did the same. And he called it cognitive egocentrism, which is when you basically project your own mentality onto others. And I talk about liberal cognitive egocentrism, which is essentially projecting onto other people who don't necessarily share liberal values, these values as sort of universal and, and you know, I had a student who um, said that she didn't like uh, Daniel Goldhagen's depiction of the, the Nazis because she said that he dehumanized them. And I said, well, how do you, what do you mean? She said, well, he depicted them as sadistic. And the point is, you know, animals aren't statistic. Humans, it's a uniquely human trait. It's a good point. And there's this it's a good confusion point. between human and humane. And, and liberals think that human and humane are the same thing, and they're not. And so as a result, they have no, I mean, as a medievalist, I'm familiar with what you could call a zero-sum mentality, which is also a shame-honor mentality. And so I'm I'm familiar with it, but most people are not. And and the real irony here is that in order not to see the Palestinians as zero sum players, you've got to see the Israelis as zero sum players. So you know the people who are the most committed to positive sum interactions are the ones who get villainized, and the ones who are the most committed to the really nasty stuff. I mean. And again, here we get to lethal journal, the second side of lethal journalism, which is not only reporting lies from the enemy, but not reporting truths about the enemy, which is that they daily have preachers preaching genocide against the Jews from their pulpits, which is something, incidentally, German priests and ministers during the Nazi period did not do. Um, they have it on a daily basis, and and in order to not believe that they're like this, you've got to assume that the Israelis are so mean to them that if they do something like blow up civilians and little kids and stuff, they must be desperate because they I have no choice. Which, if yeah. I were desperate, so it must be right. Brings me to my next question, which I love. So, when we speak about minorities or when when people poo poo this savage behavior away because the poor oppressed people have no choice right. how no condescend choice. it's condescending and yeah. counteracting yes it's so, it's uh, my friend Zichronoli Vracha um, Gerst, uh, Manfred Gerstenfeld coined the term humanitarian racism and it is it's uh, the other expression is the uh, racism of low expectations there nobody wants to make any demands on the palestinians if you look at the peace negotiations they always break down the second that you start making demands on the palestinians so for instance in 2014 when Kerry had done extensive negotiations with the Israelis and squeezed all sorts of concessions out of them. He went to, uh, to uh, Abbas, and Abbas threw a fit, because as far as he was concerned, he had no concessions to make, and the Israelis needed to make more. And instead of telling it like it is, Kerry blamed Israel. So you've got, it's a, it's a terrible mix of, failure to stand up for your values 
failure to criticize people because you're afraid of being called a racist when in fact that very deed indicates what a racist you are and and then a projection onto the israelis of all the evil that has to explain why there's still a conflict right right well well then what is the difference between islamophobia and anti-semitism like how is islamophobia not the new anti-semitism right, right. you know what i mean because that's what i feel i feel like this the, the script has been flipped yeah and yeah, yeah and um suddenly i'm i'm the oppressor right <laughs> so i can no longer claim that being targeted in my own homeland is anti-semitism because then i'll be islamophobic and it just feels like all it's so sound, really so childish, honestly. I feel like I'm in a playground. Yes, yeah. A very you are, dangerous you one. You are in a playground, and the teachers, namely the outsiders, the foreign press and stuff, are siding with the bullies who are being beaten by the kids who don't want to be involved in the fight. So Yeah, who had enough. Right. I I have a whole bunch of what I call astounding stupidities in my book, which I define as an astounding stupidity is when you do things not only that are not to your advantage, but to your disadvantage, but things that are to the advantage of people who want to hurt you. Um, and one of them is, and I heard it from Jews, especially in academia, that Islamophobia is to the 21st century what anti-Semitism was to the 20th century, which is ridiculous. There's nobody out there preaching the extermination of even the population of any given country's Muslims in the West, much less. If anything, quite the contrary, quite the contrary. I mean, the support that the Islamic community has had from the Jewish people, from political parties and religious parties. I mean, the, the, the way we've extended ourselves. Right. And and in fact, the opposite is true, which is anti-Zionism is the 21st century version of anti-Semitism. And it's being pushed by both secular, secular and religious Muslims um, in the name of the Palestinians. So you you get literally this is what gives us Holocaust inversion. You have this this notion that somehow the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians what the Nazis did to the Jews. You know, so offensive. It's 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 insane. And what you end up with is a quote Paul Berman, no no, um Ian Buruma who uh, in 2003, wrote in the New York Times, and he he it was a toss off. It was it wasn't even he was contending it. He, he just assumed it. He said it's become a litmus test of liberal credentials to be pro-Palestinian, and this is at the height of the terror war, the height of the suicide terror war. So, okay, so some liberals get sucked into this, but a litmus test of belonging to the to, of being a liberal is to support a movement that spouts genocidal hatred treats its women like crap has and 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 that's what you got to support in order to be a liberal i mean that's just yeah alan dershowitz who's been a long a lifelong democrat he says that he this has made him a pariah in his circles and he has one foot out the door because he can no longer speak where he wants to speak because he is a zionist and he's a democratic zionist so we live in a, we live in a time when uh Parody imitates life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is a book that you have to read chapter by chapter. So by the time you get to the chapter called Liberal Cognitive Egocentrics and Their Demopathic Kryptonite, you know 
what you're talking right. about. This is not a book that you could just open it up in the middle and kind of just, you know, glance through. But it's well worth the time it takes to read it and, and look at all the the photographs and, and you just so beautifully put together. Do you feel like we are in big trouble or are you hopeful? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh we're, we're in really big trouble. And, uh, you know, I work with a guy we record uh, CNN and uh, France 24. You used to record BBC, but it doesn't come to Israel. And he's been looking at what the recent coverage is. He says it's five times what it's been even during the the actual conflicts with Gaza and stuff. And it is just overwhelmingly negative, the, the sort of commitment of journalists to blacken Israel's face is so strong. The New York Times did a random article. Apparently, there's face recognition software, which allows a certain amount of, let's call it discrimination. Um, and, uh, you know, Americans are so stupid about uh, profiling that they actually stop. Um, they stop. Uh, random white people. What's the word? <laughs> Yeah, they stop random. Well, my right. mother, you know, they stop every right. in the airport. So exactly, Israelis, and Israelis are like, we're not wasting right. time here. Terrorists look a certain way. Right. Exactly, we can't afford this. So um, we can't afford this virtue signaling. So, so okay, you can say Israel discriminates, but instead it's apartheid, which is you know criminal. It's got a terrible reputation. Um, people think the worst when they hear it. And of course, it suggests that we think that we are superior human beings. And that is not the reality. I am equal to you if you don't try to kill me. By trying to kill me, you put me in this position where I have no choice but to defend myself. It's like common sense. Right. Right. And, And because the media does not report the threat, people on the outside look at us fighting back and say, why are you beating up on these poor people? who are only too happy to have us beat up on them. And in particular, and I say this with great deal of pain, they're they're okay with killing their children. They do it themselves and they have no regrets. They, they, they take those kids that they killed, hopefully by accident, um, and run them in front of the TV cameras blaming Israel. So, so yeah, so the, the the situation is really poisonous. And I I can't say that I'm, you know, if the New York Times will take an amnesty report and run it with a big headline, and then at the bottom, amnesty report says. Uh, <laughs> you know, amnesty are the um, worst, yeah. Right. Amnesty is among the worst. HRW is also really bad. The UN is awful. Um, and, and you know, the innocent outsider who doesn't really know what's going on says, you know, can all these people be wrong? Which is why I gave book, my yeah. book title I gave it. Well, what I find so bizarre is that we're living in, a, in an era where people get triggered if you misgender them or if you miss, you yeah. know, if you, if, if you use the wrong pronoun. So, yes. it's ha- so I feel like just get on a flight. Come here, see with your right. own eyes what we're dealing with, and then you know the truth. But, however, as somebody who lives here, I've seen over and over and over the NGOs who come here and the visitors who come here, and they right. kind of just gloss over what's happening in Israel, go straight to you know compromised areas, and start reporting right. the narrative that they have decided they're going to report. Right. They are right. reporting and from they- that angle no matter what. 
Right, and they groom their people not to confront the Palestinians. Don't ask hostile questions. So you go over there and you're basically forced to listen to these people and you can't ask them any embarrassing questions. When when NPR interviewed Talal Abu Rahma, the Palestinian cameraman who took the pictures, uh, who took the footage of Muhammad Adura and staged it, you know, they didn't ask him one hard question. They didn't say, why is it that this went on for 22 minutes and you only had one minute of footage of it? And when he said, well, my camera was running out, they didn't say, well, how much footage did you shoot that day? 22 minutes. Your camera ran out after 22 and minutes. Right. And also they'll say, what do, what do you mean? Are you suggesting the Palestinians are lying? Yes, that is the right. reality. It, exactly. So right. So there was this famous incident in 2002 during Janine when Andrea Koppel came here and she hadn't even left Tel Aviv and she was already talking about Israel, you know, failing morally and it was going to it was going to disappear because of its moral failure. And somebody said, what are you talking about? She said the massacre. And he said, well, what, what, where do you get information about the massacre? She said, well, my colleagues, he said, they can't get in there. Where do they get it? And she said, well, the Palestinians. And he said, did it ever occur to you the Palestinians aren't telling the truth? And she said, oh, so they're all liars now, right? And so, you know, <laughs> you say, yes, you're a racist. What it should have been is, oh, so the Palestinians are always telling the truth? I mean, right. it's just, it's staggering the way we backed ourselves into positions. But what have we done and wrong? Way, what? What have we done wrong here? You know, this gets back to the Bush's speech that we started with, which is you, you have a situation in which um, you want to look good. You don't want and you want to be good. You, you don't want your people attacking Muslims. So you support this speech. And, you know, that's one thing. But to continue to support it after it's proven wrong and you have to rethink and you know, you got to get serious about this. No, I mean, for years after, in fact, when Trump ran in 2016 and was being accused of Islamophobia, Bush's daughter posted his speech as a rebuke to Trump. And so you end up with a situation in which we're constantly trying to virtue signal and they're able, and that's the term I use is demopath. It's people who use the language of human rights as a way to um, as a way to paralyze people who are committed to human rights. They have no, the Democrats have no commitment to human rights, but they'll use that language in order to force you to back down. And, and we back down. We constantly back down. We don't want to challenge the other side. Well, and, and it's not just that we're afraid of Muslims attacking us, now our own people, our own colleagues in the university, the journalists' own colleagues will assault them if they start do if if they break these rules and start criticizing. Yeah, it's really beyond the pale. You know, President Biden tweeted today. Today is the beginning of National uh, Jewish National History Month, and he tweeted out 14 hours ago, Muslim culture has been woven throughout American culture from the very start. 
We must always stand up against anti-Muslim hate and stand up for the rights and dignity of all people. It's essential to who we are, a nation founded on the idea and freedom of justice for all. I don't know why he tweeted that. It has 5 million views already on Jewish History Month. And two hours ago, he tweeted out, This month, we celebrate the enduring heritage of Jewish Americans whose values, cultures, and contributions have shaped our nation's character. Yeah, so um what is that? I just recently well, I just recently saw a study of how many Muslims are in the administration and it's pretty staggering. Oh my gosh, if um, I have to hear one more tweet from what's her face, uh, Rashida Talib calling Israel right. apartheid or Palestinian thugs fighting, calling that, uh, you know, resistance or all those um, catchphrases and those hot topic words that she used, hot button words. I, I'm going to lose my mind. I am so frustrated with, with the their presence. The, the, con- the fact that this is coming out of town hall, <laughs> this is coming out of Washington. I mean, it, it's ha- like, it, it just feels... It's staggering, yeah. And, and I mean, Tlaib is a really good example of what I would call a demopath, who's always talking about the Palestinian rights, but has absolutely no respect for the rights of anybody else, and certainly not of uh, Jews and, and Israelis. But you know, there's this this problem of um, the way in which we're forced into accepting this kind of stuff. I don't know if you remember when Kamala Harris was talking to a student who wasn't even an American student. She was half Sudanese, half Egyptian, and she referred to the Israelis committing uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide against the Palestinians. And instead of saying, you know, I'm really sorry, but you're just so off that uh, you really need to learn something. She said, you know, I'm really proud of you for telling your truth. So we're in a situation, and then she goes on to present her acceptance of this girl's comment about Israel as a sign of democratic vibrancy. So, you know, we're we're in a situation where we literally can't think our way out of a paper bag. I mean, I don't know, because I'm very solution-oriented, and I'm like, you know, there are days when I see a lot of the Israeli, as they call them, Hasbara, which is like a dirty word, but the Israeli defenders online, you know, on a good day, we're knocking down those lies, those myths, we're tackling all kinds of conspiracy theories and blood libels, it's just nonstop every day, all day, and it comes at a price. I've been blocked and banned from Twitter a number of times, you know, you can't even say he was a terrorist anymore, even if he was a terrorist. So there are some days I think maybe we can win this. Maybe if we join our resources and put our brain Jewish cup together, you know, we have that, we have that, um, yeah, we have that advantage. Right. I think you're right. And I was asked in another interview by somebody, what would happen if uh, another Muhammad Abdullah fake were to appear? And among other things, I said, you know, the the receptive ground for it would be huge and the people who bought into it would be difficult to sort of convince but nonetheless there's a much stronger presence of people ready to push back when i started pushing back against uh, muhammad adua i couldn't even get the support of organizations like adl and hjc uh, they didn't want to, and and among other things, or the the Israel project. I mean, there were very few people who were willing to stick their necks out, and now I think we have a much stronger 
contingent of people online, but uh, it's, and listen, I mean, you know, I, I said this in London about eight years ago, we're fighting not just for Israel, we're fighting for democracy, we're fighting for Western civilization, we're fighting for uh, I mean, one of the points about democracy and religion and freedom of religion is that in order to have freedom of religion, you have to divide state and church. You have to deny church or religious leadership the power to enforce their beliefs on other people. And that's something that Muslims have not yet done. And so as a result, to say, oh, well, we have to accept them because we believe in freedom of religion literally means we don't know what it means to believe in freedom of religion because it means giving up the coercion that the Muslim leadership in Europe and the United States, by and large, has not given up. Right. There's a lack of intellectual honesty. I, you know, people should read the book when it's definitely worth exploring. And I'm looking forward to the audiobook version. I'm a big audiobook, audiobook junkie. You say, speak up or we face disaster. And that's what I'm doing as much as possible. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully every little, you know, pushback will help in, in whatever capacity. The thing that really drives me the most crazy are the tweets from like Kenneth Roth and Peter Beinhart and, you know, all yeah. those guys. And, 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 and again, we could explore this ad nauseum and, and talk about why they do this and what's lacking within them and how they're the safe self-hating Jew. And there's so many, really, there's really, it's a really fascinating almost conversation concept idea that somebody could behave that way. Uh, but how do we, push back at Jews without destroying them and ourselves at the same time. It always feels so wrong. Like I want to tweet something so nasty at Peter Beinhardt. And I'm like, he's just, he is a Jew. He has children. You know, I just, right. there's something so yicky about yes. it. Yeah. I hear you. And in fact, I think that's one of the problems we have today in Israel, which is that both sides of this are projecting ill will, if not worse, onto their opposition. And that's the, in America and in Europe, there's a, a real partisan politics that's gone more than partisan, it's gone tribal. It's my side right or wrong, and your side is wrong, and not just wrong, but it's evil. You know you're wrong, but you're doing it anyway because you're bad. Um, so yes, I, I agree with you that it's it's a really terrible thing. And yet, on the other hand, if you don't push back against these people, you um, you basically allow them to spew their hatred. So uh, what I would recommend, and uh, you know, you, you can tell me what you think about the tone of the book. I, I got both criticism and praise for the tone of the book. Some people said that it was too polemical. Uh, especially since I pretend to be a historian. Other people say uh, I was remarkably self-controlled given the astonishing stupidities mm -hmm. I was dealing with mm -hmm. and so on. I'm um, in that party. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, but part of the point here is that, that we have to push back without demonizing. So, you know, I don't know what going on in Peter Beinert's mind. I do know that what he's saying is profoundly dishonest and profoundly destructive and pro 
Find find yourself an Arab friend that loves your Jewish behind, right. like Peter loves the Palestinians for no good reason. Right. So right. So I think that that you know one of the ways to do it is just to keep peppering them with questions about you know what's going on in your mind that you're able to do this. That's my attitude towards Charles Andela. What is going on in your mind that you are unable to say Khatati? Right. I made a mistake, and it was a terribly expensive mistake, and that my own people have paid the price for it. And long ago, I should have said, I should have retracted it. And wow. instead, that could be the day. Just, that would yeah. be the day. Um, well, yeah. I'll tell you this much. Like I said, I am concerned. Um, books like this give me hope because I, I see that the situation is being addressed and, and gives us. Uh, fighters for Israel. It gives us the tools we need and the resources we need to keep fighting. Because sometimes, like I said, you think you're in the twilight zone. It's like you're almost like, could this be true? And then I'm like, well, this yeah. big, this big fancy professor said it's true. So you know, I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely gonna go with that. And I appreciate the time you took to write in. And I can encourage people more than to, than to get it. I, I, at the end of the day, I, I truly hope that especially considering artificial intelligence and, and the havoc that that's going to rain on social media and what's true and what's not true and what's real and what's not real. Right. People have to really take a good, long, hard look at themselves and decide once and for all, am I with good? Am I with evil? Does my, my, does my intuition tell me that this stinks? Does my intuition tell me that this is a hard pill to swallow, that this is a lifestyle, that this is the way they behave? Then go with your gut. Go with your gut and stop trying to intellectualize everything and make everything into a woke issue so that you fit in. You really have to be honest with yourself here. Right. But remember, one of the, the dynamics of shame on her culture is that you want pure approval. And so as a result, your gut can be telling you to get approval by taking the side that the woke take. So, um, you uh, know, until God it, forbid, there's another it, it, September 11. Yes, right. So, and and the reaction to say September 11th was in fact self-destructive. So, I I think that at the heart of this is a level of self-criticism, of mature self-criticism, that you know, look, we'd rather not, we'd rather, <laughs> we'd rather not engage in that. But <laughs> if you're going to be a leader. You really need to do it. Uh, at one point, I, I was in the Pyrenees Mountains, and I was talking with a shepherd who took his flocks out basically from April to September. And while he was out there with his flocks, he had maybe one goat to every 10 sheep. And I said, why do you need the goats? He said, because if there's a rock slide or there's thunder and lightning or something and the sheep get nervous, they look at the goats. And if the goats are calm, they stay calm. And that's, we need goats. And to be a good goat, you've got to be grounded in a level of self-respect and self and introspection that permits you to acknowledge what are the forces that are pushing you in directions that are incredibly harmful to you and those you love. Right, because I believe in the good in humanity. I even believe, and I know some of my listeners are, are going to be frustrated, but I believe in the good of the Palestinians, and I don't enjoy seeing children suffer, and I would like to see yep. this this uh, area become a little more peaceful and, and have less suffering. So whatever we can do to accomplish that, 
I support. All right. Thank you so much, Professor. I, I appreciate your time. Keep fighting the good fight. And I will put a link to your book in my show notes. So there you have it. Episode 105 of the Weekly Squeeze Podcast. Don't forget to join the giveaway and win five incredible books from Mosaic Press. Head over to the app, leave me a five-star review, and send me a screenshot to hanalasings at gmail.com to enter. Winners will be announced in two weeks' time, and I will see you, my favorite Weekly Squeeze listener, on Monday.